Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is Unrelated Thoughts on Being an Unruly Adoptee. I ended the uh, last episode abruptly on the note that to grow up Christian, particularly Baptist or Evangelical as a child, is to grow up physically abused. Um, I think that that's pretty universally true. The ethos is, or the overriding meme that justifies this is spare the rod, spoil the child, which you will hear a lot as sort of the refrain to justify of violence as a means of control or discipline, I guess is the term you preferred term. I ended it abruptly because not only did I hit that point, I kind of hit the end of the hour of the episode, but also I hit the battery life on my um, unwi- or unwired earbuds. So I've switched to a wired earbuds to complete the recordings. This will slightly change the tone and tenor of the recordings going forward too, but think of it as an audio scar. A child's memory in the moments and an adult's memory of childhood are two different things too. So my short-term memory and experience as a child and how I understood and interrelated at that time with those in my life versus how I look back on it as an adult and think about um, what I experienced given a different frame of uh, uh, mature understanding means that my inner relationships that I have with those same individuals are changed by those reflections, right? So I'm forever scarred by the wounds my adoptive father inflicted on me and as a result I try to never wound my own flesh and blood son in the same way. Um, I don't want to perpetuate pain. Pain experienced for long enough becomes sort of background. It colors perception. It moves beyond its sort of initial frame and creeps into consciousness from the edges, the periphery. I deal with constant chronic pain now as an adult. Not just mental pain. I'm not talking about um, CPTSD, complex PTSD or identity trauma or tension deficit brought on by moments of hyperactivity. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about physical pain. And pain that's always present in my hands, in my feet, in my knees at times, in my right shoulder. Um, Pain defines moments, right? It defines periods of time. When pain is drawn out from the day of birth by separation of mother and child, that pain of loss becomes a lifelong filter through which all other relationships are engaged. I think of it as a call, um, a birth call, through which one sees dimly what others take for granted. For me, Kansas, which is kind of something I started in the previous episode as a real deep dive, Wichita, Kansas, is a space of traumatic memories overlaid on a tragic soil that was cursed generations ago. Um, so I'm kind of burdened with a rage for the place. This episode I call Keeper of the Plains because 
I keep feeling as if I was betrayed by the cultural space itself, Wichita, not by individuals, by a force there in that city. So the city is like a maze, and like any good maze, the only way to get out is to find the center and petition the keeper who holds the planes. So um, to reiterate, there is a spirit of the city. Every, every environment, I believe, every place has a spirit. I live in Athens, Georgia, and clearly the spirit of Athens is Athena, the Greek goddess whose statue appears in a few locations around the city. Um, owls are sort of a constant presence in, in the psychic landscape of my experience of this town. But in Wichita, the keeper of the plains is the spirit of the city. You know, he, uh, believe me or not, and perhaps this way out only mattered to me and the few other friends with whom I've shared this, but I still think the only way I left the Wichita Vortex was by asking the keeper of a plains for assistance. So learning how to leave, like the cuckoo chick learning how to break the egg, like a serpent pushing out into the world, all that shell provides strength to go on. In other universes, I am long dead, I am sure, by my own hand or another circumstance. I, I am lucky in this one, but it is and always remains a strange sort of clumsy luck, like God had bad aim, like a stoned guardian angel or fairy godmother is just a bit off target. So being an adoptee means that life is a crapshoot. There is no anchor, no ancestral path, Nothing but intuition for guidance when the home you are raised within feels more like a holding cell. That sensation certainly accelerated. I, I talked in the last one about getting home from the mental hospital. It felt like I moved from one holding cell to another from that point, and that my life was a series of holding cells until I finally broke free and moved to Denver. Leaving Wichita was getting out of the holding cell. For me, Kansas was a crucible, the alembic of my alchemical experience. There, all the childhood matter was sloughed away, and I left as spirit. I may be a multiplicity of possible selves, but I remain bound by linearity, by the passage of time. So, in their home, I was raised to be a soldier in an army of God, but when Operation Rescue came to Wichita, I'd already left the church, and embraced a kind of self-directed animism. I was, well pra I was well practiced in conversations defending my beliefs at that point, and I was well past wanting to protest abortion clinics, as I proved at Summit Ministries uh, in that summer. I had no interest going to protest abortion clinics with Randall, the guy who had come to town pitching it, with his sort of revivalism to every evangelical church in the area, alongside my adoptive parents at the age of 17. I wasn't going to do it. There are a lot of different ways in which we as adoptees are recovering our identities for ourselves. I've spent years reading the posts of other adoptees from around the world, and I'm consistently struck by the reoccurrent desire to fit in to find a place where experiences can be shared, where the puzzle of oneself can be worked out with a few interested people to validate that experience. I mean, we are all unique. Fitting in doesn't and cannot mean finding genetic mirroring. 
for most nearly all adoptees that genetic mirror is never present until a conscious reunion has been undertaken or someone has offspring of their own. Fitting in means finding people with similar trauma who can help by being a supportive network for normalizing these extra familial junkets that overtake the lives of adoptees at the end of the search process. We, we help each other process grief and fear and obligation and shame. There are communities online that advocate for political change around adoptee laws, and there are groups that exist to help adoptees search for their relatives, but I find the most value in those communities that are there for adoptees to vent, to express fear about reunions, to share victories in searching, to share memes, to reveal secrets carried for far too long, to bullshit about film and television that are reflective on the adoptee experience, that have no social repercussion but mean so much to the person and the people who are unburdening their souls and finding communities, uh, conscious communities. I'm also a member of several communities that exist for adult survivors of child abuse, for individuals with CPTSD and PTSD and a number of other communities. Knowing how many others are struggling daily with symptoms of mental trauma, adoptees and otherwise, helps immensely with my daily routines of self-care. I mean, we are a community that is beset with trauma, suicide, and abuse at levels comparable to marginalized communities in other spaces. Um, trans communities of color have, uh, but, you know, adoptees have very high suicide rates. But that doesn't mean that suicide rates aren't spiking in other marginalized communities as well, particularly given the pandemic and the post-pandemic spaces. Suicide is a risk that affects many different sectors of our larger social tapestry. And getting past those moments of suicidality or, or suicidal ideation, especially when uh, you feel deep inside yourself, oneself, that something is inherently wrong about one's identity, that and that perhaps there was a moment where life was different, but now a new false imposed reality has been wrapped and sort of plasticized and compressed and transacted around you. So I'm not saying adoptees are unique in their suicidal drives, but I'm saying that there is a factor there that is an identity trauma that is a motivating factor towards suicidality in adoptees. I mean, some adoptees, are going to feel bereft of purpose. Uh, they feel, when you feel commodified, and then you're sent away to boarding schools or farm retreats in rural states and mental institutions, and when that ultimately fails, you, you, adoptees keep that wheel of progress churning. Right? They're providing valuable, less important children of the well-insured for human trials of new psychiatric medications. I was on Prozac long before everyone else. My take on the role of adoptees within society. The larger institutional spaces where adoption is humanity processed, sort of prodded, measured, and scored, right? There you find the macro effects of a community-wide mythos that's centered around adoption. The Three Identical Strangers, again, that film, is a good look into the mythos that governs the behaviors and interactions of people. 
uh, the, the mythography, the landscape of belief around adoption and adoptees that kind of create the nooks and crannies where individual lives are lived and lost in the shadows of trauma that need never be inflicted. It's these lives that are never heard, or I feel lack in representation. Survivorship bias means that the pain of countless individuals is subsumed into the statistics that outline the disparities in care, the opiate abuse, the suicide rates, the poverty rates, the emotional abuse cycles, the pain, unarticulated, right? The lives lived in shelters are ended prematurely in excessive morality rates for disease. Adoptees are cursed like an infant in a fairy tale to live lives as shades of who they were, a kind of twilight existence never truly born as the story remains one of gifting, not of birth at their internalized narratives of origin. But that's the lapse of the adoptee, the burden that transcends other similarities of selfhood that could normalize and bind individuals to their peers. I didn't feel heard until I befriended other, another adoptee in high school and we discussed our feelings of otherness. He came through Catholic charities and I came through evangelical fabrics, but our experiences were extremely similar as were our seeking of other ways of knowledge. Um, I learned more about meditative states and hypnosis because of my conversations with him. I mean, that was an interest that had started when I was in Twin Falls, me and the other kids. And like after church, hanging out with other kids in parks, you know, you would, I remember a girls hypnotizing each other to forget the number five in the, down the street. And my first encounters with hypnosis was there in Twin Falls amidst my peer groups. My understanding of meditative states was something that I learned from my friendship with him in high school, but my interest in hypnosis had certainly started much earlier, playing with like other kids. And, um, but through the years, I guess, as I've reflected on my high school experience, I, I kind of sought to identify these factors that led to my feelings of otherness within those spaces. So why did I feel like the schools themselves were inherently hostile spaces? And at what point did that begin? As I kind of laid claim to my own story over my years, I also sought to rid myself of tobacco addiction, finally quitting in 2003, and then again for good in 2005. The urge to survive grew as I found a life outside the home within which I had been raised. You know, I see smoking cigarettes as reflective of that death urge and the desire to overcome it as a desire to overcome that suicidality. I also ponder why I found connections with others except for adoptees and outcasts, especially difficult for me to cultivate during those years of my life. Um, I remember one friend of mine saying that I was the ink in the pen that would tell the story of our time at Goddard High. And at, the, at that time, I marveled at the number of adoptees who've kind of outed themselves to me in my early life, sort of normalizing what could have otherwise been a deep source of antisocial pressure. Uh, in addition to the mental stress I'd already outlined. Um, turning 18 in Kansas as an adoptee that was from out of state was complicated also by the fact that in Kansas, law allows an 18-year-old to immediately get the 
documents detailing who their biological parents are. I thought that that would apply to me since I lived in that state when I turned 18. That wasn't the case. Um, so watching the adoptees I met who lived in Kansas find and then connect with their biological family in a way that seemed legally authorized and then realizing it didn't apply to me was another moment of um, identity trauma that further ostracized me and made it harder to connect with those friends that I had made as adoptee uh, peers in that space. I mean, now that I've more fully integrated these experiences, I find it easier to have acquaintances, engage in small talk, and generally pass, if you will, as a well-adjusted adult. Um, I think a lot about passing. <laughs> I think about the similarities in queer experiences and adoptee experiences, or maybe being an adoptee is a kind of queerness within culture. Um, as, as my son grows up attending public school in Athens, I'm finally realizing the anxiety I felt uh, and the turmoil that I dealt with that arose kind of from an anxiety about my placement within the world, beginning not with school, but with my family. The security and happiness and warmth that my son usually feels within our home is carefully extended into the school hallways as we gently introduced him to the environment, starting with pre-K classes and on through into the grades. As my experience of school was as an extension of the disciplinary structures, I mean literally they authorized physical abuse by the principal of that school as I moved into it from my home life, I felt the rigidity and authoritarianism without even the attempted emotionality that my adoptive parents provided to temper those physical punishments, right? School for me was a cipher for incarceration, not a place of learning. It was an extension of the church and carried with it the authoritarian airs of the church in my mind as a child, but it did something else, became something else in my memories now. School was a place where my differences as an adoptee were called out and my outbursts in class were met with physical discipline, nebulous discipline in the form of demerits, which persisted throughout the years, and physical discipline at home in response to the paper notification of my earned demerits. So this tiered system of psychological and physical abuse, institutional psychological abuse, which I first encountered when asking questions about mothering of my first grade teacher, are tied into a physical sensation of indigestion <laughs> that seems anchored in my gut as I remember that year. Um, physical, physically, I, I express pain in my body as I remember these moments. First grade is murky, and the time that I spent on the playground seems devoted to marbles, swings, running in the parking lot, running laps in the parking lot for having gotten in trouble with my first grade teacher. I don't know her name or why I felt singled out, but that year stands out in my mind as the year I was hurt, the year I realized I didn't dare trust the adults, where I had to find my own way. School being an extension of my universe that later I would see as Orwellian, a world where trauma was disappeared, where bad kids were expelled, never to be seen again, where the funniest boy I knew in grade school killed himself two weeks before my seventh grade, and his eighth grade had started. He died attempting to fake hang himself, which is what we were told. He was found with a plastic straw shoved down his throat and a belt around his neck. I've blocked his name from my memory, and I won't repeat 
my suppositions in this publicly. But my world was one where discipline threatened to become existential. Punishment in my cosmology extended well beyond life into an eternal torture that loomed if I did not always put Christ and God central in all I did and thought. I was tested on this dogma, literally quizzed on the details and taught to memorize scriptures, which included learning the citational style of evangelical King James Version Bible thumping, quoting Micah 2.3 or Jude 1.4 is a shorthand to entire conceits or points of theology. Everyone in the U.S. has seen John 3.16 floating among the fabric of culture but I could drop obscure burns into conversations that only those gifted in scriptural recall would giggle at when I was on my game. Deuteronomy 23.2 and Hebrews 12.8 were ones I bandied about when I wanted to wield my adoptiveness self-consciously as a weapon seeking to undo my status, my presence, within the school and church complex I'd been enmeshed. In Wichita, with new friends, a new social space unmoored from the church environment, that authority had broken down, and I was left only with my resentment against the trauma I'd experienced in Idaho, meeting a friend who was also a closed-file adoptee. Also from within a Christianish home, which he'd rejected, meant we bonded rapidly over our mutual search of meaning outside of the confines of the beliefs of our adopters. We also bonded over our love of role-playing games. It should be no surprise that adoptees who have identity trauma would find role-playing games where identity play was essential to be a form of bonding experience because identities could be discussed, manipulated, researched. Different universes of identity could be explored and mapped. Over time, he and I created a role-playing game that we based on ourselves using mage and werewolf uh, play frameworks to explore alternate universes where we had slightly different abilities that were mapped directly onto our own experiences. So, we bonded rapidly over our mutual search of meaning. My formative years were spent singing onward Christian soldiers in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. I pledged allegiance to both a U.S. flag and a flag of the Christian nation while in school. Understanding nationalism was to understand it as a religious imperative to protect the Christianness of the U.S., which was then layered within an imparted sense of duty to commit violence if necessary. In the music, in the songs, in the rhetoric, the poetic rhetorics, holy, righteous anger was seen as divine wrath. It's like a spiritual force that was wrapped around a person, cloaking their soul from experiencing the sin of a given act, so long as it was performed as part of God's will. That's what absolves the soldier, the Christian soldier. I don't know that I was taught this belief directly, this meme, but it felt performed for me in the lives of my adoptive father's emotional responses and those of my friend's fathers around whom I grew up. I understand now in reflection that this was a generation of veterans from Vietnam, probably all of them traumatized, performing masculinity in a rugged, individualistic, and austere environment of Idaho. My understanding of violence, wrath, vengeance, and duty was filtered through a cultural sphere steeped in a tradition of hunting, posturing, and stoicism. So, having been indoctrinated to be a Christian soldier, 
I saw my duty as that outlined in the 1980s film Red Dawn. I was to go to ground to stop an invading force of Russians that intended to establish a caliphate or something similarly, similarly sinister in the mountain states before sweeping across the rest of North America. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only child raised believing this was inevitable. We had social interactions, like planned camps, strategy sessions, and political events, all plausibly interwoven with the natural and ongoing lived experience of the region. I wanted to be a wizard, right? Most of all, someone who could create electricity, fireworks, lasers, hopefully. Um, upon discovering the stories of Nikolai Tesla, I deeply wanted to be someone like that, for a renegade band of outcasts. I pictured Red Dawn and the Road Warriors competed for psychic landscape as I imagined a world turned upside down, a left-behind apocalypse where the social order had violently left myself and a few known friends capable of fighting back against some concretized oppressive force. This appealed to me greatly when I was 12, 13, 14, and living in Idaho, playing Fortress America board game. But moving changed my understanding of the scope of scale Moving to Kansas, driving across country, challenged my notions of scale. Because by the time I'd lived in Wichita for two years, and my adoptive parents saw me drifting away, if you will, from the church, uh, I found it a cultural space I saw it as deeply unnerving. I no longer thought I'd be caught up in a Red Dawn scenario. I was much more interested in figuring out if there was an Illuminati. I wanted to unpuzzle my own personal conspiracy theories, not about society, but about myself. Was I being actively watched? Was I an experiment, right? Moving to Wichita, being inserted amongst a cohort already traumatized by a school shooting, which I talked about in the previous episode, and then outed my senior year and ostracized for having been institutionalized. Um, I was treated with fear and loathing by my English teacher. Like, I was drifting along on a haze of serotonin enhancers of varying strengths and unable to dream anymore. Um, being hospitalized caused my entire social world to fall away. The medications prevented me from dreaming. None of my peers wanted to speak to me. Um, I had made a few friends outside of school by working at Pizza Hut and Taco Tico, but Goddard High School felt to me like a cruel, dispassionate space. I had very fond memories of those two teachers, Jubal Tyner and Darling Chris I mentioned previously, who kept me in their thoughts while I was locked away for those weeks and who showed me that ki every kindness in the following year. Um, without their guidance, I would have never gained what skills and confidence I have mustered. Darling Chris taught me to brainstorm my way around and through a problem, and Mr. Tyner taught me to juggle. Um, although I think he was supposed to teach me literature. I sought paths of least resistance and tried to read as much as I could with my headphones on. Somehow I made it through school. Rage was not a constant, but subsumed rage, moments of rage with each cigarette lit. Those weeks that summer convinced me of two things. I was done with Christianity as practiced. Whoops. Oh, I have overamped. Those summers, those weeks that summer convinced me of two things. I was done with Christianity as practiced by those I knew, and I really loved Colorado, particularly Manitou Springs and the mountains. I was on a path headed towards a direction, but still unpacking the implications of my awareness. 
Being sickened of an ideology without a resulting safe space to unpack that loathing led to a series of confrontations with my adoptive father, who matched my rages with his own. He, being a power lifter at that point, expressed rage with flexed muscles, so a physical presence. He stopped beating me after the mental hospital. I think he may have feared that I'd relate the beatings to my therapist or psychiatrist. But his threats, though more infrequent, were now directed at my property. Threats to put me out into the street and ultimately conflicts that resulted in a deep and, I guess, lasting estrangement. In place of the family tree, I have stories that I've puzzled out. Those white lies I was told daydreams and fantasies about my real parents and this unending sense of abject irrational panic when triggered by requests for documentation, for papers, for filling out forms. Um, I'm anxious about my own legitimacy, that I am real, that I exist, that I am a citizen and won't be deported to some neither realm, neither world. This is a question that I'm never free of uh, that is my adoptee legacy, that unknowing. I am bonded to a whole tribe that is related by virtue of being without relations. In our lack, we are connected. The negative space of our histories is the backdrop of our meeting space. The community is always evolving, as with any community, but the most vocal adoptees are like lights in the fogs, leading me, leading I am positive, countless other adoptees into a conscious life, right? And so this is for those who need to read beyond the moments of adoption and reunion, the two bookends of the adoptee narrative that we are reduced to as representations within most medias. I cannot produce media from my moment of adoption, and I am unlikely to affect a reunion that is mediated. So my story falls into a messy in-between. Certainly, I wrote this script, and I speak about this in the belief that even if there is no reunion for myself or for others, which there was in a sense, but still, there are still others curious enough to listen to the tales of the struggle, right? The truth I do have is still riddled with puzzles. <laughs> But I am wholer than I would have been without the adoptee community online and adoptees I've known along the way. Perhaps it is the prescribed intimacy. I won't ever out an unouted adoptee. In, in some sense, all adoptees who abide by this code are members of a society with secrets. A private by-nurture group of ad hoc networkers bound not by blood or family, but by the very lack thereof. It's not a fraternity or sorority, <laughs> but it is a social structure. There are several fascinating factors at play in the current adoption community, I think. First, the wildly different approaches to adoption throughout the country and throughout the world have led to a broad spectrum of voices and experiences now being shared on global platforms. For the curious, I would say Twitter is where this is most visible. But private and secret Facebook groups are where the densest networks are being formed, these affinity networks, particularly amidst those who seek to change public perceptions in state and federal laws. So this creates some tribalism with the adoptive parents, birth mothers and adoptees being the three most distinct subgroups within the ongoing conversations. But there are many other stakeholders, um, birth fathers, adoption agencies, 
child counselors and trauma workers, therapists and politicians even. Journalism, journalists are starting to pick up these stories. Adoption seems to empower adoptive parents to seek to evangelize others on the benefits of adoption as a practice while overlooking the lived experiences of traumatic separation that adoptees must endure to become the, quote, blessing that a non-fertile woman might receive. Adoption as a practice is rooted in a loss that must be grieved, mourned, and memorialized or it will become a parasite life. Cuckoo in the nest an echo of other practices that consumes all that is curious, is grieving. So an adoptee's inner life lacks the warmth, the giving that the adopter thinks they are granting. My, my mind is more shadow and cobweb than daylight and pasture. I was told throughout my childhood how lucky I was that God himself had helped my adoptive parents find me, that I should be grateful to them and to God, and that I was special. This is likely what they felt they needed to say. They may have even been coached to say these things. My adoptive parent was fond of saying, you did not grow under my heart, but in it. Uh, my less charitable thoughts now upon hearing or reading this phrase is heartworms and I find the notion itself similarly strange. My experience is that I do not fit into their world or their family, and I am too tired to try and force my way in on my own terms. At my worst, I am disconnected from all people. I like infused with the literalness of imposterhood. At my worst, I feel unwanted and unsafe in every situation. At my worst, I am certain that I am dead or in a coma, that this life is a shell of memories that are being replayed, I am ineffectual and all interactions are scripted. Uh, there is a part of me that wonders if I ever bonded with my adoptive parents when I was young. Again, my earliest memory is attempting to run away from home, gleefully fleeing up a hill just out of reach of my adoptive mother who struggled to stop me. Rather than bond with them, I developed a kind of camouflage to adapt to the space a way to sink into the background and hide away. I feel affinity for the spiders that lurk in cracks and webs high above that survive by disappearing, by being hidden in plain sight. That was the theme of my childhood, complete with an almost pathological fear of spiders. For me, relationships begin handicapped by fear. This fear is rooted in my fundamental unworthiness. I'm never quite present so as to be never quite accepted. To be present fully, my idiosyncrasies sort of uh, on full display, idiosyncrasies on full display, poised, bitter, and imperfect, would be to be removed, dissolved, <laughs> my identity wiped away. I am a disjointed piece of history. If I was the product of rape or incest, then I am evidence hastily hidden. I am a juncture upon which someone else's secrets are kept. Someone else's stories were told, a story I have yet to completely comprehend. Um, in my personal dealings, when I am lied to by someone or someone misrepresents me in some way to others, I take great pains to never again engage the person in a conversation of substance. But unraveling my adoption story takes me into places where I would otherwise avoid altogether. Um, I mean, I have spoken with retired Baptist pastors and old church receptionists. I've dug through 
stashes of papers in my adoptive parents' home. I've sent my DNA to multiple services, despite my own deep misgivings about the technocratic interface of social networking and DNA mapping. Every so often I print out everything I can find, spread it all over, and try to see if there's anything new I can know. And then stash all that paper into boxes, trying to ignore the gaping hole in my identity. I can only run my birth chart, my natal astrological positioning, so many times, and every time I do, I wonder, can I trust the documents I gleaned the time of my birth from? As a citizen in a country where ancestry and birthright have become a political hot potato, having a hole in my history brings with it visions of doors kicked in by ICE agents in battle gear and detention camps while judges overloaded with cases sort out the particulars of given paperwork. So, in the book, The Bastard Chronicles, an anthology, on page 217, Editor M. Paul writes, With the internet, search angels and DNA testing, thousands of those separated by adoption are finding each other every year. You no longer require your OBC, your original birth certificate, to have a successful search. Adoptee equality rights don't have anything to do with the relationship between the adoptee and first parents. It has everything to do with the relationship between the adoptee and the state. End quote. There is no equality until adoptees are treated like all other citizens. And there is an identity trauma. There is an injury to adoptees perpetuated and created that should be rectified by the states who have erased their identities and, by extension, their ethnic lineage, their relationship to history, their place in the world. And the federal government is also complicit in injury in cases of international adoptees. We've even deported adoptees who never knew they weren't citizens when adoptive parents neglected to fill out proper forms they may never have been made aware of by the adoption agencies who profited from the transaction. Adoptees are victimized repeatedly in various ways throughout their lives and are then expected to be grateful for their adoption by the cultural forces at play in their lives. So today there is no longer consciousness within the machine of the government and adoptees are camouflaged, protected while still children and forgotten, displaced as adults. So the fogs of adoption as an embrace of a new and welcoming family lifts and the reality of the papered over identity sets in against a backdrop of social unrest anchored in the politics of identity. You know, I ignore this and mark out the patient questionnaire that demands family medical history. I find that I never invite others into my life. I push away what friends I may accidentally make by constantly diverting their attention away from my story. I've spent years doing this. The fear I mentioned above is the fear that I should have never been born. That even carrying me to term was damaging for my real mother. Uh, so I was born just after Roe versus Wade had been settled. Perhaps Idaho just didn't have abortion providers in the winter of 1973. Should I have been aborted? Was I the product of rape or incest? That's the question I brought with myself for most of my life. And if so, do I carry some defects, some genetic marker of sexual violence? 
Back to the am I evil or a bad seed of some kind. Never mind the inbreaking of truth packed into the query framed within the clause product of. It is rare for an adoptee to hear the word product in reference to themselves, as it's a little too close to the truth about adoption as industry and baby as commodity, but in discussions around an adoptee's origin, this clause will arise, and the adoptee will eventually overhear these questions, will internalize them, and will return to them again and again. These questions are my pain. Uh, again, the call through which I experience the world and the scars I own. But the wound is perpetuated by a social apparatus disenfranchising grief. An interlocking series of civic, civil, religious institutions, academic ones even, medical ones, that set the stage, then legitimized the elimination of my identity grafted into a new family. They never named my biological father in the adoption, possibly, I now know, because he as an adult could have prevented my adoption, but also because they didn't know who he was. I know his name is not on my sealed birth certificate, but I cannot get a copy to determine if this is so. It's against the law to provide it to me. Uh, I have learned that my birth father was never told about my existence after I found him. The courts of the county acted to absolve my adoptive parents of any feelings of guilt or reluctance about parenting. They were absolved of moral injury by the moral entrepreneurship of the local doctor, lawyer, and pastors who engineered my fate. My adoptive, my adoptive parents were sold to lie, sold to countless other conservative Christians. As Rudy Owens uh, uh, wrote on page 99 of his book, You Don't Know How Lucky You Are, regarding the overlap of conservative Christianity and the practice of secrecy and identity erasure in adoption, he says, as an adoptee, I have always viewed the Christian myth that being adopted equates to being born again as a marketing strategy to legitimize adoption nationally. This myth may remain the dominant idea in legislative settings and in the national consciousness because of the outsized role of evangelical Christianity in global adoption and how that influences American thinking. He goes on to say that, in short, the evangelical Christian view demands continued secrecy that denies adult adoptees their birth records. So, I mean, as a business model, adoption also requires closed records to sustain the organizations who profit from the placement of children, according to open records advocate and birth mother Claudia Corrigan Darcy. The raw and immoral logic of supply and demand drives this new global industry. End quote. There are a few challenges less appealing than attempting to change Idaho adoption law from New York or Ohio or Kansas or Georgia, the places where I lived as I worked on these problems. In all of those states, I remain subject to Idaho state law regarding my birth certificate. Despite not having the recourse of a state legislator, I could contact an Idaho who would bother to listen to me as a citizen of one of the other states where I previously or now currently reside. So, None of the obvious paths to social change are available to me. Only, you know, pure application of overwhelming wealth, if I were to acquire it. And the overwhelming advice from everyone to whom I detail this conflict is that it's best left alone. Don't pursue this straight on. You know, it's always take a DNA test and see what happens. 
or try and forget I was ever adopted, advice I've never been able to take, right? So to remain unaware of one's trauma is to disassociate in accordance with removing the criticizing social apparatus which hails, interpolates, and articulates the conscious adoptee. Disassociation reduces the pain of trauma to a background noise, uh, an invisible restraint that steadily chokes out the vital energy of life. Um, Adoptees wounded in this way are often described as being in fogs, particularly before they make the connection between their traumatic abandonment and their lifelong mental health challenges. When an adoptee begins searching for themselves, they become a recovery. Recover, uh, recoveries uncover memories and stories to become whole, to redress inequities, to repair broken spiritual links and reveal secret knots that tie them to the human race. Adoptees are cutaways, dropped into a community and left to fail or thrive based upon their circumstances and resiliencies. Recoveries are taken beyond that victimized status and repair themselves from the understanding that comes with self-knowledge. Being adopted begins a process that can easily destroy a person, and it nearly led me into suicide. I half-jokingly say that at the bottom pit of my long, dark night of the soul, listening to Nine Inch Nails' album Fixed. It was my realization that I didn't wish that I had never been born. I wished no one else had been born. My anger had always been aimed inward. I was never good enough. I had always been made of sin. My presence was a taint, a disruption, mamzer. But in that instance of deciding to not kill myself, I started wondering why I believed I was a sin, a spot on the world. Uh, it was the religion, the family, the school, my peers, my prayers, my friends who hated me. The position I occupied was a station in life for abuse, uh, the black sheep, the whipping boy, the one who should be grateful but wasn't. I was caught in a narrative that I was complicit in constructing. I was not the prodigal son. I stopped being Mr. Self-Destruct. When I realized I was not the prodigal son, that was a story for my adoptive parents' benefit, not my own, but instead I was Moses, the adoptee who recovered the fullness of his world-breaking divinity, and through his God's help, brought calamity and chaos to those who perpetuated a culture of inequity, inequality, and abuse. Uh, Moses, in his miracles and prophecy, saw what was broken, <clears throat> what could be done, and who was worth saving from the world he had been born into. The adoptee, who was more of an agent of revolution, a recovery of freedoms lost 400 years earlier, right? He became a vector for movement forward for the people once caught up in bondage. Moses, who, despite his struggles with rage, was driven by a need to reconnect with his own ancestry, even when brought into the very highest possible social class. I am also uninspired by opulence or poverty. I am deeply moved by the friendships I have made at all levels of class of society, though. I, I guess I am comfortable with excess, but I'm seldom personally motivated by more than hunger or pain. I, 
I have odd and enduring friendships that have arisen from experiences that I would have had no chance of experiencing without the unique path of my own life. Um, I've shaken hands with celebrities in situations that confound me in retrospect, but my driving motives are kind of always been the need to redress grievances that are legitimate, I guess, particularly among populations who cannot impact the normalized power imbalances in community spaces. If I have luck, I hope I can divert it into more of these moments. At the heart of this is desire, is a desire to see adoptees treated more easily in life and in on-screen representation in medias be that film or audio or television, streaming services. Um, I do think it is a problem that This Is Us and Legion are the two best portrayals of adoptees on television in the year 2018, because there are better stories to tell. At this point, I think season four and five of This Is Us have brought in adoptee voices in the writer's room that have balanced out the narratives in ways that are extremely valuable for the culture, but when I believed I was part Native American, not even a particular tribe, but a sort of amorphous indigenous bloodline of some sort, I, I kind of dove head dove headlong into reading about Native issues and contemporary causes. So in Lawrence, Kansas, where I lived at the Prospect House, my Next door neighbor for a time was the son of Rene Sansom Flood, who's the author of Lost Bird of Wounded Knee, Spirit of the Lakota. And I spoke with her on the phone for four hours. We talked then about what might have been my tribe, given the region and the politics of the early 70s in Idaho at that time. She talked about the difficulties I faced uh, at the time we spoke in terms of tracking down any information. Uh, I asked her about the term split feather in relation to adoptees taken from tribes. Much of my anguish and despair at the time was tied into how I understood the practice of genocide and colonialization, uh, a feeling that I may have been a component of a larger genocidal engine, that being raised Christian was at the expense of an erasure of a different spiritual practice that was my true birthright. Uh, I came then to deeply resent the religious culture I'd grown up within. I learned of the Hawaiian schools run by the Cook family and realized that there were distant unroofed family connections to what I now see as indigenous genocide in Hawaii. I wondered if my adoption was kept secret out of racial anxieties. The questions about my possible alcohol consumption I was asked often in family settings seemed rooted in racist character, um, fears that I may exhibit savage traits, if you will, in quotes. Yet none of this was true, I learned later. My father and my mother show no genetic lineage through Native American blood pools, gene pools. I am not who I was told I was. My identity remains kind of unresolved, not fully apparent for years after I first took a DNA test. All of it, all it did was unravel one confusion to create a somewhat larger mystery. Um, before I took the DNA tests, I picked up a book of essays and poetry compiled and edited by Mary Jo Moore titled Genocide of the Mind, New Native American Writing. 
And in this book, on page 66, I have a green tab marking this particular paragraph by Gabriel Horn. He wrote, As a man and a student of history, I would also learn that cultural genocide begins when one people rods the religious views of another people through indoctrination and fear, and how the practitioners of Christianity made every effort imaginable to impose their anthropomorphic god on Indian children, stealing our future of the most precious and vital view of life and of the world and of the universe. End quote. So, discovering through DNA testing that I am not Native American, denied my tribal history, is a strange gratitude. <laughs> uh, realization is important, and I see other connections that explain my experiences through the new information, but that time I spent studying the genocidal impact of adoption practices and boarding schools throughout the history of this country, Canada, and Australia is forever applicable to today's world. <laughs> so we are a country, a culture even, that does separate mother from child and sees that as an act of civic duty at times mandated by law. We seek to control upbringing. We have been human traffickers since long before the U.S. was a country, and these trace forms of trafficking still remain woven into the unseen fabric of family life. Well, my ultimate discovery of paternity did not reveal a larger agenda to separate me from a tribe. There's still a weird undertone of racialist intention woven into the decisions that had been made on my behalf. The civic force, as metaphorical entity, exhibits such world-altering power over the infant that the experience is internalized as a mystic event. A ritual of deep and abiding significance, at least to the adoptee. I didn't experience racial trauma, but those traumatizing me saw me in racialist ways, uh, but didn't see me for who I was. My trauma was an identity trauma. Pursuing an identity and being led in the wrong direction was no accident. It deepened my empathy. If I have ancestor spirits, clearly they're setting me on these paths. It made me realize adoption as a practice has had much worse legacy than I'd ever understood without the study. I began to see beyond my own curiosity and perceived a different shape to the situation I'd believe myself to have been in. If I were a quarter Native American, then the Actions and attitudes of the boys who relentlessly bullied me throughout 6th and 7th grade could have been racism. Uh, one step further, it could be common belief among the parents that I was a quarter Indian because the rumors of my parentage were spread throughout the parents of the school. So I could have been experiencing racism directed at me, but I wasn't the race that they thought I was. I have a friend who was pulled over in his own car because those pulling him over thought he was Middle Eastern. Uh, and then they apologized when they saw his driver's license and realized he was deeply tan. Well, I did not appear Indian. I was treated as if I were a threat of some sort, and that translated into other treatment I received by other students at Twin Falls Christian Academy. It seems absurd to me. Race seems absurd. 
all of this, who we are, where we're from, what we can do, how we act, that is all governed by nature or nurture, all manifestations of DNA or spirit or some combination thereof. That is the central absurdity, the grand joke of the law. I am nothing like my father, biological or adoptive, or maybe I'm a lot like my biological and adoptive father. Well, I'm nothing like my sisters or my sister or my only sister, or my biological sisters, or half-sisters, or my brother, or half-brother, um, or half-brothers. I am nothing like my mom, or maybe I am everything like her. I am an amalgam. I am resilient, I think, because I am deeply traumatized. That trauma made me similar to my adoptive father, but much less like my biological father, who is cautious and temperate and kind, as far as long as I've known him. I long to know my biological mother better, but she is not my adoptive mother. Um, that the law demand that I become, in all senses of the law, my adoptive parent's son, is to deny the real physical matters of blood and spirit. And possession of my OBC, original birth certificate, would require that laws were broken on my behalf, short of a court document court order to open that document. So my sealed birth certificate is a magical document, one that through ritual had been rendered more important in the eyes of the state of Idaho than my own life's productivity, as I need expend my own funds to pursue this as a legal matter. If I were to obtain my OBC, my original birth certificate, illegally, I would ostensibly face imprisonment, depending on the extent of my own actions and getting it. Yet I don't think my adoption was necessarily valid. I believe it occurred under false pretenses and without my biological father's knowledge or consent. I believe the state of Idaho is covering a fraud on the part of those who arranged my adoption as I was taken from my bio biological mother uh, against her will while she was under anesthesia signing the documents. So did my adoptive parents deserve to have me taken away from them, though? Are the experiences I had later in life, specifically the medical neglect that it left me with head scars, trauma to the bones in my hands, and anxieties about being touched from behind, caused by my adoptive father's treatment of me, a more compelling reason for oversight of adoptive family integrations? I am not against adoption completely. I am deeply conflicted about my own adoption. When the possession of identifying documents is criminalized by the state, even to adults to whom that identity applies, it makes identifying possible human trafficking impossible. For myself, I find all other encounters with the state into immediate flux, like anxiety flux. And I suspect with other adoptees it's similar. Who decides the conditions of truth when truth has to be officially pronounced? And to whom should I appeal? Legally or truthfully, in the eyes of the state, my adoptive parents are my parents. My identity is tied to a social security number. My documents, a decree of birth, rather than a birth certificate, is without biological markers. It's only a paper on file thousands of miles from where I live. I have no proof that my name is my first name, or that it has meaning, or that I'm connected to that document. There's no footprint. Like my son's first signature when he was born in Idaho, in Ohio, on the piece of paper. Nothing to hold up to scrutiny if the government should decide to absorb these documents and disregard them due to 
data filing or lack of biometrics or other filing irregularities. I've seen my documents and even I have questions. I'd rather not rely on the generosity of strangers who work within ICE or DHS. Uh, I want to close this episode by saying that I am unruly. Uh, I am a disruptive identity. My name is Wes Unruh, Jeffrey Wes Unruh. I was born in Twin Falls, Idaho at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center on April 15th, 1974. A little bit before 1 p.m. And before the sun set that day, I had been delivered to my adoptive parents. And I've been putting this puzzle together ever since.